0: Welcome to the CEO of Destiny Podcast, where you will find the tools to fulfill the purpose of your generation and wildly succeed in the marketplace. And now your host, Andre J. Benjamin. Talk about um, your bride a bit. You know, I, I know uh, the importance, how you came to meet her and, and what, what impact she had on your life and is still having on your life in this new season.
1: So uh, when I was in the Navy, uh, I took compassionate leave because my mother was towards the end of her life. And she managed to, to live, you know, a, a good 11, 12 years longer than the people predicted. Oh, and, uh, she was right, what she told the young man. She, she was absolutely right. right. And she did tell me one time, she's not, she's not leaving until all her three children are, are, are safe and taken care of. And I was the middle one. Uh, my brother left home earlier. He joined the Air Force and my sister joined the police force. We must have a thing about uniforms. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, as, so she saw that I was safe and it was my turn to take her to the hospital for chemotherapy. And I was being a typical... You know 21 22 year old there was a good soccer uh, game on tv that i wanted to watch so i wasn't actually very nice or very happy about it um being typically you know a kid being selfish if you like That's anyway i was i was i was wheeling her through the hospital ward towards the chemotherapy unit and uh, a nurse stepped out of a side door and they both they hugged each other so she she was my mom was in the wheelchair but the nurse came and hugged and shouted audrey how lovely to see you again and i could tell that these two knew each other really well and then she looked at me and that was it. I was smitten, Cupid's arrow right in that moment. So that was one of my, my mother's last acts was to introduce me to my wife. And wow. we, had, we had an incredible marriage. We were so happy. We didn't always agree on everything, but we never disagreed relationship-wise. We were always very, we got, with adversity got stronger and stronger. And unfortunately she, she was born with a, a heart condition and uh, which isn't, she wasn't supposed to live either. She was never supposed to see her teenage years, never supposed to see, wow. You know, her 20s and stuff. Uh, unfortunately, it got the better of her uh, December last year. So she had her transition uh, December the 2nd. Um, but, you know, did, and she was very ill. I mean, she really was exhausted by that point. But to go that long and to, and to be, she was a nurse, of course, and to be a healer and a caregiver for so long and successful at it was amazing. So she, again, I'm very lucky to have had very, very not just in books, but in real life to have two of the most powerful women I've ever met around me and pushing me and encouraging me,
0: you know. And there was a uh, sweet moment in your book where you talked about um, when you go to your mom and you have made the choice about pursuing the relationship. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, my mom knew. You mean, yeah, you mean, yeah I mean, she, she,
0: she, basically, she was basically signed on to, to like, yeah. She, 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 she was
1: wondering moment. what took me so long, I think. Yes. What took <laughs> And then, so I actually, so I decided to leave the navy because I'd, I'd already seen so many dear John letters in the navy where people, yes someone's gone to sea for a, a year and then it's it's tough on the people left behind, and and uh, Lynn, my wife, her father was the sea captain, so he'd been he was away at sea for two years at the time, and she knew what that felt like as a kid, and she knew what it felt like for her mum, and I didn't want that, and so I decided to to change careers basically. So um, I tell people that I decided to use my um, Radiation physics uh, education that I got in the Navy while I was there and, and pursue a career in the hospital in radiation therapy. But actually, I just became a stalker. <laughs> just, <laughs> there, was a job, there was a job available in the, same, in the same unit where she was working. And so I, I took that job without thinking about it, actually. And, um, and then took about three months to build up the courage to ask her out. Anyway. That was, that was what my mom was shaking her head about. You know, when are you gonna ask
0: exactly? That? That's why I thought was funny was, was <laughs> when I read how your mom was like, come on, like what's taking so long? It's-
1: yeah, she had well she and Lynn had, you know, fantastic intuition, as most women do, although you know, society sometimes undervalues that. It's one of the things I bring into my businesses actually is, is to 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 help people, to coach people to move away from analytical decision making and towards intuitive decision making. And and to do that, you have to do things that are somewhat unusual you have to you know start to learn to meditate and you have to get out into nature and connect in a different way than perhaps you've been taught in the past and in doing that if you're lucky like me as a man you can probably develop 10 percent of a woman's intuition (laughs) and and that's enough to make really good (laughs) business decisions (laughs) if Uh, i could if i could bottle it you'd be talking to the richest man in the world oh
0: yes oh definitely Uh, uh, if you can you talk about when you stepped into the workforce and uh, just sum that up, because I want to. I'm going to pivot into asking you questions about what it was to be a CEO and and how you stepped up and 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 things of that nature. And um, but con- I, I want to contrast the difference of when you were in the workforce versus um, why you stepped out on your own to st- to launch your own. Um, I know well, there's probably I, I think you probably know
1: the answer because I was in the corporate world. That was yeah. a motivation for me to get out of the corporate world because I'm I i was not good at it. I was not good at the corporate world um, when, I, when I look back and analyze my career, you know I probably spent seventy five percent of my time sitting in a meeting room talking about things that had nothing to do with customer satisfaction, that had nothing to do with creativity, had nothing to do with with um, uh, you know, uh, upgrading what we were doing. You know It was all about keeping employees happy It was, like, it was human resource system after system you know. Um, you know, the, these horrible things that people have to go through at the end of the year, the performance and appraisal systems, I mean, they were agonizing and torture for me. And, but I was, I'm as, I'm as good a BSer as anybody. So I made a really good career out of saying the same thing that everybody else in the room has already said, but in a different way. And, and I just thought it was pointless. So <laughs> I got more and more frustrated. And then, and then one day, so it was over a period of about a year working with this particular company, I was working closely with the CEO who I still have a relationship with and I'm still, um, still have respect for that we had a product that was sitting on the shelf that I knew could be further used by by babies that had this, this enzyme deficiency. But I couldn't convince anybody to put money behind not a marketing campaign, but an awareness campaign that this product exists. And so there were a lot of people, a lot of uh, babies suffering unnecessarily, and I'm sure some died as a result. It sounds awfully cruel and cold, but this was a public company and had, I, the CEOs made, made a very smart analytical decision. And, the, and that is, if we put money behind this, the shareholders will kill us. So, so we can't do that. So I decided to do it myself. That was when I decided, you know, I said, okay, I'll, I'll fix this myself. And I'll come out of the corporate world and I'll start a company. And because of the experience I'd had in the corporate world, I wanted it to be anything but that. So I, I didn't want meetings. I don't want an army of people. And actually, as it turns out, I, I built a hub model. So so like model of alliances, you know, uh, vendors to do all the different, regu- all the different functional things that we need. And then I decided, you know, I've, I've seen enough of the different sides of the business. I don't need to hire anybody. I couldn't
0: afford to hire anybody. Truly. Which I think is phenomenal because you've done that multiple times. You've done this multiple times where you. Well, it worked
1: so well the first time. <laughs> so, so, so if it ain't fixed, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, you know, so, so um, what I found was it worked beautifully and that my management style could, I could relax that I'm the CEO you do as I say kind of approach and become more peer-to-peer because these people were experts at what they did. And, and I, I don't know their their side of the business. And so I became more of a conductor role, more of a peer-to-peer um, uh, you know, the, it was more important to trust people than to supervise people. So I had to change And I'm I, up until then, I was a bit of a control guy. I would, you know, I was, I was always quoted as saying, if you want something done well, do it yourself. And now in this new business model I had, I had to completely change my attitude and, and uh, approach to it. And so the hub model works really well and, the, and the, 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 the surprising finding of the hub model was it was highly profitable. So we were, so I've never had an employee um, in, in all of my companies. And so I started this company with about $200 an idea and then I raised 2.1 million to get the rights to the product
0: that I'd been fighting with the CEO, CEO over for so long. Can you take us through that process of how you were able to raise the 2.1 million?
1: um with just sheer belief uh so so i probably was rejected 50 times because i hadn't been a ceo and i hadn't had my own company and you know that we have this fantasy that people love startups and, and and excited entrepreneurs but the reality is that you really need you really need to get somewhere first you need to prove a concept so i kept getting knockbacks uh, and i traveled around the united states to try and raise money it's not a lot of money um and that was one of the lessons i learned i, I was i didn't realize that if I'd, gone, if I'd asked to raise 20 million, I probably could have raised it a lot quicker because no, they couldn't see how, how I'm gonna make money out of 2.1 million. And I wasn't thinking that through. Um,
0: later on- That's it, in of itself, because you're saying ask yeah. bigger because yeah, exactly. on a smaller scale, but then for an investor, they're looking at it like, well, why would I waste that's my point. time out of data?
1: Lawyer fees. And, and, the, and you know, that was proven about two years later, when, once I was a bit successful, I found the rights. I wanted to get rights to another product and and I raised 28 million in six weeks. So, so that proves it really, but, but um, the raising money is no fun. I have to say, I don't, you've got to have really strong mentality. You've got to use all the tools and techniques that I use because getting rejected all the time, you start to question yourself and think, am I crazy to do this? And they're actually telling me I'm crazy as well. But um, so what I decided to do was to prove the concept of the business plan that I put together. So I went, I've got another product that I managed to get the rights to for nothing. A very very small product, very niched. It only did about thirty thousand
0: dollars of sales a year. So how and, did you negotiate that person to give it to you for free, give you the rights for free?
1: Because uh, they because they needed to make do another manufacturing run, and it would have cost them ninety thousand. So basically three years of revenue. So I said, well, give me the product, and I'll pay for the manufacturing. And so I and then I and then I scrambled and scrambled to find a manufacturer who would manufacture it for me, but not require payment for a year. Nice. Then, yeah, that took a bit of doing, but I, but I did it. Um, And then I built the model around it. And then I went back to the same investors who'd rejected me and said, here's the model, this is how it works. Because I'd taken this $30,000 business, which you can all laugh at. And it was now doing a year later, $120,000. So I quadrupled. And I said, so imagine what I can do now with this other product for which I need 2.1 million. And and so I got the 2.1 million. um, And and then about three years later, we were doing 12 million a year. So so it it all worked out nicely.
0: So when you, uh, can you take us to a, a moment of when you were uh, a, an employee and you were the first to win the marketing professional of the year award, can you talk about that, that grand award, that grand prize and how it.
1: <laughs> I was so excited. I, I don't know what I was thinking, but it, I was excited because I was a sales manager and, and no sales man, in, in In the UK, it's, it's different in the United States, actually, but in the UK, there's such a division between sales and marketing. They don't like each other and, uh, and marketing have a superiority complex. And um, uh, so for a sales manager to then put together a marketing program and for that marketing program to be selected by a committee for potential to win a prize of European Marketer of the Year. There was a the gold, silver and bronze prize that caused so much um, uh, attention and Backbiting, and you—you you can't, you can't imagine what was going on behind the scenes. It how dare—how dare a sales manager think that he can do marketing? You know. Exactly. Anyway, it, it got selected. It, it came second, actually. I, so I got European Marketer of the Year, but it, there was there was kind of a, a, a double prize, if you like, and um, and I got a little bronze statue, a little um, uh, uh, gold statue, and I was very proud of. And then I was on the stage, and then the American executive team, this, is, this was 3M, okay, so there's a huge global company. Absolutely. American, American executive team had flown in in their private jet for the evening of like, like an Oscars evening for the presentation of these prizes. Everybody knew that I'd won this prize by this point. And, um, and so I thought, I've made it. I'm a millionaire now. You know, so I, I Financial up,
0: independence is in this. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And they had the envelopes. And I thought there must be, you know, this is America, right? So there must be millions in these envelopes. And uh, it was a lot of fanfare and they presented this envelope to me, you know, and I didn't open it on stage. Thank goodness. Um, but I, so I, I tried to remain calm and dignified. And then I went to the bathroom and I sat in the bathroom and I took it out of my pocket and I opened it. And it was a single share, one share of 3M stock. And then in those days it was worth about $75, I think it was. And I, I just laughed at myself, like, like, you're laughing now. It's just like, what was I thinking? You know, I guess I'm going to have to keep on working then.
0: So and, and what I what I love about that story is it's it's such a uh, that's a it's a microcosm of something that is it, it, that you expect you, people go in and it's kind of like unvoiced and unmet expectations. Well, they believe that because we were we were all given a narrative that you work hard, you go to school, you, you go to college, whatever, you get a you get a great job, and as you pay your dues it's like a disney movie everything will line up and you know this is my moment i'm i've murdered it i've killed it in this area i'm doing so great and then bam you see that you get this stark contrast of that you see wait a minute 75 75 bucks like this is supposed <laughs> to get me this is supposed to motivate me for the next year how is this even going to get me through the next sales quarter i i love i love the fact that you put that in the book because and that how you said you know you you, you really thought financial independence was right next there because that's a real thing for people is that nobody, you said you, you, you seldom do people ever get rich working for others. And that, yeah,
1: that it, that's, that's, that's true. And that's, you know, I see that. I mean, it can happen. You, know, you can work in tech and you can get shares and you can, you can make a few million, but that's not financial independence, but to be, you know, financial independence. So what is that? Um, a lot of people, I, I, this is one of the things I coach in the courses is, is the relationship to money. Because I've had to learn it. Growing up poor, you know, you have this, this sort of mentality of lack and your relationship with money is very poor. And you can be somewhat jealous of those that have it and, and resent it uh, or resentful of it. And so you have to learn that everything in the universe is made of energy. This is a physics fact. You can't deny it. Everything. We're all made of the same stuff. And that includes money and thoughts. They're all made of energy. And when you change it, when I, when I change my, my understanding of money, that it's just energy, and that energy has to flow it completely changed my approach to financial independence in that it's not some, financial independence like i was like i thought when i was in the corporate world it's not something to reach or something to hold or grasp it's not the top of us it's not a summit you know it's not sitting in a Hogwarts vault sitting on a pile of gold coins financial independent independence is having a huge amount of money flow through your life and you use it wisely and you invest it wisely and you Absolutely. keep it flowing and the more you flow the more, the more you let flow, the, the, the more comes in. And so that's happened with my businesses. You know, it's you know never sit on the pile of cash or anything like that. And so, because when, when energy stagnates, you know, it starts to diminish or find another outlet. And so, I, so that's to be the very important thing. And it's something I talk about a lot because most people don't like talking about money. They, it's, it's considered crass. They'd rather talk about the sex lives than money. And sure. so so having get, helping people, encouraging people to seek money, see money as energy and talk about it in an, ener- in an energetic fashion, if you like, understanding how energy moves and that energy can either be created or destroyed, only converted into another
0: form, changes our approach to it completely. Squared. What did you talk a little bit about the financial quicksand? You talked about your family being in financial quicksand, and that's kind of the situation that a lot of people are finding themselves in, um, some based upon their own decisions that they made personally, and then others based upon uh, the environments that they're in with downsizing and you know, recessions and all, you know, all the, whatever the labels of the day uh, of the different places that people, whoever are, is watching or listening, what they're going through economically, talk about that contrast of how you were in that situation and then how, where you're at now and the the connector. And and um, also if you could outline the difference between being busy versus being effective, because you, you, you alluded to that sitting in meetings that were just, what what am I here for again? And wait a minute, I could just repeat the same stuff and say it in a different way. And I could get through talk. Can you talk about how you realize the value of time, and then talk about the 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 being in financial quicksand and how you how you can get out of the financial quicksand with the, with the. Yeah.
1: I mean, I mean, totally. And both both have probably handled the same way. So, um, you know, when, when I grew up, I say we grew up poor. My father was unemployed my whole life, and we lived on welfare pretty much. So I never had an allowance or anything like that. So so I I first started to make money. I created my first business when I was twelve. And uh, it was on the school bus because the school it was a, it was only a five mile trip, but it was so many stops it took about an hour and a half. And the first stop was to bring on the week the daily shoppers. There was one bus to, to and from the village, okay, and uh, and and kids would jump off, run into the candy store, get some candy, and some of them wouldn't make it back on before the bus took off. And so I've and and people were f- afraid, of, and, and little kids were being bullied to go get. Candy for the big guys, you know, and so I saw a business opportunity there. So I, so I decided to do it, and so, so I, I gave, everybody gave me their money, and I ran into the candy store, and it was so much more efficient, so much easier for one person to make five orders or ten orders, than for That's ten awesome. people to make individual orders. So I, I, I never missed the bus, you know. So, so, so I got everyone's order and got back on the bus, and my reward was candy, okay? Because I couldn't afford my own candy, so, and and I, of course I had the candy, so I learned, you know, I'm, I'm eating my own profits. <laughs> <laughs> but I like that. So I realize that people will do. You know, people will pay for convenience, and people will pay for, for for courage and all the rest of it. So that's how I started, and I, that was the beginning of my relationship with money. There's nothing wrong with this. You know, this is good. I've yeah. managed to get candy for free by providing a service, and everyone's happy. You know. Yeah. Apart from the bus driver, so <laughs> I was threatening to close the door, and so I went on and did that so then I, I started organizing card drives uh, so with uh, like bridge and whist drives, because uh, the people in the in the villages they didn 't have any community there was no uh, the, the kids didn 't have a youth club the, 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 um, the seniors didn 't have anywhere to hang out, no town hall or anything so i I used emotional blackmail to convince a, a, a rector uh, or so, you know um, a vicar. Uh, to let us use his house, his hall, if you like, to run these card games. And I had all the, and I sold tickets to all the, the seniors, and the kids could use, could, you know, could hang out in the youth club and everything. And we had these tournaments and raffles and all that kind of stuff. And I made significant amount of money for me from having no money whatsoever to suddenly having 10 or 20 quid, you know, like say $30 or something in my pocket was massive to me. And then I saw what money can do because, you know, my mother's suffering terribly. And I could buy my mother something that she desperately wanted, you know, or wasn't able to have. And that really changed my relationship. So that's how I got out of my version of quicksand, and I took that out into my life. But I made all the mistakes that everybody else makes. And I got into too much debt. Um, You know, I've got a mortgage that I really, everyone said, get the biggest mortgage you can possibly get. Because house prices never go down, right? That's what everyone told us and so and, and i did and it was choking and suffocating and I, I decided never ever to put myself in that position again so the, the first part for me is to get yourself debt free no matter what it takes no matter how the sacrifices you have to make get debt free and the people i had the people in my course transformation the people who have got debt free for the first time they always email me the same way it's always capital letters wow i never thought it would feel like this i am debt free for the first time, and some of them say in parentheses in decades, yeah, in capital letters. That is the first part of financial independence. You've got to get debt free. However, you can make that happen: downsizing, selling stuff that you don't need, and you know whatever, whatever it takes. Um, and and then once you're debt free, you you're no longer susceptible to you know when you've got heavy debt and your stomach turns over and you think, what have I done? How have I got into this mess? And you're watching TV. Let's say you're watching an NFL game. And there's all these get-out-of-debt-free adverts, these commercials on, and they make you think of debt all the time. And the more you think of debt, the more debt you're going to have. So So you have to change. You've got to change the whole thing. So you get debt-free, and then you'll never be affected by that. You'll feel fantastic. You'll feel free for the first time, probably in years or whatever. Uh, That's the starting point. So so once you do that, you can get out of the quicksand.
0: Um, Thank you for listening to today's episode. Do us a favor. If this was useful in any way for you, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. Reviews will allow others to easily discover the podcast. If you'd like more information and to receive a free download, rediscover your destiny, go to teofdestiny.com. Thanks again and tune in next time.